We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. This show will be talking Emma, Pigita, Parallax, indignant coaches, England VAR again, Portland, Christmas decorations, soccer media veterans, SOTU weddings, and so much more. But first, joining me as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you doing on this Monday, November 6th in the year 2023? Doing well, and we are in good hands today for a change because Kat is stepping in for the absent Sean Sullivan producing today's pod. Yes, congratulations. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more later on the pod about the uh, weddings, but as uh, for those that listen, know that uh, Sean was off getting married. So that happened evidently this weekend. Big old gala affair um but we are in good hands as you said because there is always somebody else you know we are um you know we're like those teams that there is always a uh next phase and somebody behind the scenes that's not only there but is competent to not only fill in but provide competition and that's what we like if cat were to outperform sean and take his job what is the baseball reference we would wally use? pitt my friend you you taught it to me long ago i have used it numerous times i know you get a kick out of it every time i use it on uh use it on air have you seen anything watched anything read anything a couple of things i attended an art exhibit uh in brentwood this past weekend displaying the art of john lennon evidently he was an avid drawer and uh, yoko had a lot of his drawings made into prints and she's now putting them on display and it was very interesting. Where was it? What, uh, where, where, where was the event? Uh, Brentwood Village. Uh, was it in an art gallery or in an art museum? Art gallery. In, in a gallery. Yes. So you could buy it? Was it yeah. Was... And in fact, my, my buddy purchased one. Shut up. Yeah. Yeah. What is a, what does a Lennon go for? Uh, you paid $2,000 for it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So $2,000. Yeah. Wow. I mean, well, that's no Hunter Biden, but whatever. Okay. Um, what, what, sorry, you have something else? Yes. I also went to a screening of this foreign film, La Sociedad de la Nieve, The Society of the Snow, which is going to be Spain's entry for best foreign film for the upcoming Academy Awards. I'm sure you know the story. There have been numerous books written, documentaries made about it. That Uruguayan rugby team whose plane crashed on their way to Chile in 1972. Sure. Uh, they were stranded in the Andes Mountains. Uh, the movie I watched, directed by the Spanish director Juan Antonio Bayona, 
excellent. Uh, very powerful, very well made. Loved it. Uh, would not be surprised if it collects some awards. Well, how do you build on it? I mean, the story's been told so many times. Everybody gets it, obviously, you know, from a, um, I guess, a macabre standpoint with the, you know, they did what they needed to do to survive. And, and that included eating, the, you know, the others on the, uh, on the plane that were, that were already dead. It's an amazing story of survival, but how do you add to it? Uh, it really focused on the human side, the relationship between the survivors and how they interacted uh, during this ordeal. So I thought it was very well okay. made, very powerful. Cool. Uh, let's see. What do I have here? I, I watched something. I know you'll watch it at a, at a certain point. The new uh, Rene Higita documentary is out on Netflix. It's called Way of the Scorpion, for those that may not know. Uh, Rene Higita was a, uh, and still is, a Colombian uh, soccer player, former soccer, former professional soccer player, played for the national team. Um, and at this point, I think it's fair to say is a Colombian soccer legend. And yes, a Colombian legend for his look, but also his success and also everything that he did on and off the field. From an on the field perspective, it was really interesting to see uh, the documentary go into how he influenced people like Jorge Campos uh, and others, and how he influenced the game in this day and age where we talk about goalkeepers having to be able to play with their feet and being that sweeper-keeper type of thing. Well, a lot of times we put, you know, we give credit to Manuel Neuer and stuff. Well, Rene Higuita was doing that long before and scoring goals, penalties, scored something like 46 goals in his, in his career. Um, but then there's also the other side uh, off the field that goes into... Uh, you know, his relationship with um, uh, the Escobar, you know, the uh, the narcotics type of uh, situation that was going down there for uh, for years and years. And so he is not a he's not a simple man to understand. And that makes it interesting. It makes it textured. It makes it layered. Um, I get the feeling, as we talked about in other documentaries, and it's understandable that it is certainly coming from his standpoint. And I'm not sure that we have the full story. And he obviously paints it in a, in a certain way that you know, paints him in a much more positive type of light relative to his relationships with, uh, um, you know, narcotics dealers and stuff. I will definitely watch that. The two Escobars is my favorite all time 30 yep. for 30. I find that Columbia team fascinating. And, you know, Columbia has mostly gotten its act together as a country since then, but we do have this unfortunate situation with Luis Diaz yep. playing out right now. His parents were kidnapped. The mother was released. The father's still, uh, kidnapped uh so it shows that it that story has sort of harkened back to those days of colombian football well it's it's called the way of the scorpion for this scorpion kick which is what it was named for playing in a friendly uh with colombia in wembley against england it, he did it and you you will have seen it if you follow soccer if you haven't go uh, go look it up it's a small part of the documentary but it is a huge kind of moment because it kind of exemplified who he was as a player in that it doesn't it wasn't that he didn't give it's actually just he looked at the game almost like a painter. We're talking about paintings uh, as an artist for him to do something that people didn't expect. And it came from, I think, a real organic type of place where he wanted to do things differently. And he had the balls to try things that others others wouldn't. And more often than not, uh, it worked. And so it's a, it's, I, think, I think it's really good and uh, worth the time, about, a, about an hour and a half over there on Netflix. All right, my friend, you ready to uh, light this candle? Let's do it. All right, where should we start? Big news involving the U.S. women's national news, team. It news. appears they have a new manager. It's not official official yet, but everybody, including our Doug McIntyre, is reporting that they're in advanced discussions with Emma Hayes, uh, who is currently in charge of Chelsea. She would presumably double up for the next few months until the end of the WSL season in the spring and then take over the U.S. permanently. 
Um, everybody seems to think this is a great hire. Emma Hayes, a London native who has coached in the United States before the Chicago Red Stars many years back. She's been in charge of Chelsea since 2012, turned them into the dominant force in the English women's game, six league titles, five FA Cups. Uh, so it sounds like your boy, Matt Crocker, uh, stepped up to the plate here and knocked it out of the park. Yeah, I mean, I think any national team uh, would love to have someone like Emma Hayes. And you mentioned her um, her cachet and her her resume. And it kind of speaks for itself in terms of the, the success. So she is a big name. She is a successful coach, albeit uh, domestically and in a club situation, never from an international perspective. She also has, as you mentioned, um, attachments and connections and history when it comes to the U.S. And I think all of those are really, are really important. I, I was watching an interview where she had said that while she was born in, in England, she kind of came to be through the U.S. and kind of considers herself uh, part of the U.S. soccer culture. And so I think she knows what she is getting into, the good and the bad. But also I think she recognizes this incredible opportunity to kind of bring this team, this incredible team, back to where it uh, to where it was. This is uh, you mentioned Crocker. I think that this is um, something that he wanted to do to kind of plant a flag because I said I think you have to work really really hard to find something wrong with this hire, and she will be judged just like anybody else on the results on the field. And ultimately, let's be honest: when it comes to the U.S. Women's National Team, it's about the World Cup. And it's about winning the World Cup. And that's ultimately where she'll be judged. Uh, I, had, uh, I got to meet her uh, this, uh, this summer at the Women's World Cup. Uh, we, had, uh, uh, we had some drinks and I had a really you know, fun time and fun night conversation uh, with her and the way that she thinks about the game. But this is going to still be a transition for her into the international game, not the day in and day out type of routine that she is used to. And again, you know, Janet Jackson, what have you done for me lately? She is being given the keys to this incredible machine that has faltered of late and asked to get it back on course. But she's it's a powerful, powerful machine that she has. And with that comes high expectations. Yeah, you mentioned it. Uh, coming off the failure under Vlad Kodanovsky, there was this narrative that the next coach needed to have international experience. She doesn't have that. The consensus seems to be she's so good that that's fine. This would be like the U.S. men hiring Pep Guardiola or Jurgen Klopp. Yes, there would be that question over how their style would translate to the international level, but they're such great coaches that you would take that chance. So that seems to be where most people are here, but it is a question mark nonetheless. This is what I hope happens. I hope that Emma Hayes is you know, given the keys and given the ability to do what she feels is appropriate. Now, she has a reputation of not suffering fools, and I think that this team in this particular moment, I think it needs to get back to the focus and the priority being on winning soccer games and winning World Cups. Uh, Olympics next summer, uh, as we mentioned, she's going to continue on with Chelsea and finish this season out. And so I don't know how much impact she is going to have relative to what happens to next summer in the Olympics, but I would hope that she is from afar at the beginning dictating what happens. And they, you know, I've said before, I think that next summer should be used as an opportunity to blood as many new players as possible. I hope also Emma Hayes comes in and cleans house to the extent that she, uh, that she can and brings in people that she is comfortable with and, again, focuses his back in on, I don't care how big a name you are, I don't care how much money you have, I don't care how many followers you have, I don't care what your off-field positions and platforms are, 
I care that when that whistle blows, that you win soccer games for the United States. I hope that she is given the opportunity to do that. And there's not too many cooks in the, uh, the kitchen. That's why you're hiring her. The other part about this, and it's, you know, it's, it comes with a, uh, a big hire like this, and there's always going to be, you know, an examination of what the Federation is doing or what the Federation is doing. But if rumors are to be believed, she could also become the highest paid women coach in the world. And if rumors are to be believed, she could be paid the exact same amount as, uh, as Greg Berhalter. Like I've said before that, uh, you are worth what you can negotiate. And that applies to Emma or, or anybody else. If that's what is required in order to get this good coach to be the coach of the U S women's national team. Great. I, I do think that the United States soccer federation has a fiduciary responsibility because every dollar that you pay somebody in a coaching position is a dollar that's not going to others and to other programs that you have out there. So they do have a fiduciary responsibility to make sure that they are prudent with what they, what they pay. And they don't just, don't just give somebody money just to send a message. Don't just give somebody to make you feel better. That's not how it works. And if you're going to do that, recognize that there's a hypocrisy in it. Do you know who uh, Dave Kunitz is? No. Of course you don't. Okay. He's the head coach of the uh, deaf national team for the U.S. Soccer Federation. He's coached on the U.S. national team, coached on the uh, a U.S. national team uh, that deserves as much time, energy, praise, and resources as anybody else. You're going to pay him the exact same thing that you're going to pay Greg Berhalter and uh, Emma Hayes? Probably not. Okay. But if you're not going to do it, then you better be willing to express and explain why that is the case going forward. Because we have a bunch of national teams out there. We have a bunch of national team coaches out there. And when you start doing this, you have to be really, really careful that it's not a slippery slope. And now you have others coming and saying, well, I'm a coach and I'm doing the exact same thing that anybody else is doing in that I'm coaching at the highest level and I'm coaching for the United States in a national team capacity. Shouldn't that person be uh, paid the exact same amount? Speaking of Greg Berhalter, there are some U.S. fans still salty over the fact that he was rehired that are bringing up this and saying, well, Matt Crocker was able to flex the Rolodex, go out and hire a top women's coach. Why didn't he do the same for the men? Yeah, I mean, I, I understand that, but it goes back to we're just going to have the same conversation. If, if you look at Matt Crocker in this situation, I like to think that he picked what he thought was the best person for the position. and. When it comes to Greg Berhalter, and not for a lack of, of thorough investigation, I guess, if you will, and interviews, if, you, you know, if, if you're looking at the amount of people that he talked to, he still came down to this was the best person for the time in that position. So, yeah, I don't, I, I don't see this as a I don't think, I, yeah, I don't think that this puts Matt Crocker in a poor position or makes him look bad. I think, I think everybody's going to be happy about this position, and people that don't like Greg Berhalter are still not going to like Greg Berhalter. Uh, last thing, and you've sort of already addressed this, but I'll ask it anyway. I read an, a column in The Guardian uh, questioning why Emma Hayes would take this job. She referred to the U.S. Women's National Team as a viper's nest, said that they've cultivated a culture where the players have too much power and are able to run off a coach if they don't like her. Uh, so you do acknowledge that's been an issue in the past, and you want to see that change. Well, I, I don't think Emma is naive, okay? But if she doesn't recognize that in all situations, player power is a factor and, you know, depending on how long you're there and how successful you are, that power balance can shift and it can shift dramatically. But I think even from the outside, and she will have talked to people on the inside, 
I think that there is a recognition, and I think it's fair that whatever that balance needs to be for a successful team, that it was out of whack, and it has been for uh, and it has been for a while. And I think she is being hired specifically to come in because of her attitude and because of the recognition that she wants to put that balance back right. And look, it doesn't mean that you don't take into account your players' feelings, that you don't talk to your players. It also doesn't mean that players at times don't have power. Don't think for a second, Emma, that the players that you are going to be coaching, albeit a whole younger type of generation, not only are they going to have power, but at times they are going to wield that power. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but you are going to have to deal with that as the head coach of this national team, especially with that, uh, with that history. But if she can come in and she benefits from the fact that they had a historic failure this summer, because she can come in and say, hey, you're not sitting on top of the mountain anymore. All right. So all of this power that you think you have and you know all of this voice and all of all of the things that you do off the field that's all fine and well but where that comes from is your ability to stand up there and say we're the number one team in the world we are the world cup champions and we win on a consistent basis and that has not happened under Vlako Andonovsky's watch uh after this uh after this summer so it's her job to get it back and she needs to do it in the way that she sees fit and if it means ruling with an iron fist go for it and if that works great but if it doesn't, then next man or woman up. Because, again, she is going to be judged ultimately on the World Cup. Life isn't fair. Soccer isn't fair. And the role of a national team coach and a U.S. national team coach and a U.S. national women's team coach is to win World Cups. And that's what we expect. And that's what will be expected of her. And should be no issue getting her on the pod since you're friends with her. You had drinks together. So <laughs> look for that. Well, uh, I, I think that, you know, uh, most of the people at that, uh, at that night out tolerated me at the table, uh, at least for a couple of minutes. So it was, no, it was fun. I, I, I enjoyed talking to people. And again, I can agree and I can disagree with different people, but, you know, a great soccer brain and a great soccer personality out there. And so welcome, Emma, to, uh, to this adventure. And, um, and she's been sought after by many, many people over the years. So this is a feather in the cap of the Federation and a feather in Matt Crocker's cap. And speaking of the U.S. Women's National Team, I know you interviewed Naomi Gurma late last yes. week before this Emma Hayes news broke, but we're going to release that interview in the middle of this week. Yeah, uh, you know, we, we interviewed her and, and, you know, she, for me, was the MVP if there was one for the U.S. this summer. And so I'm really interested to see her trajectory. And you talk about a leader and someone that Emma Hayes is going to have to lean on from a defensive standpoint. She is going to uh, be that. And as you mentioned, we talked about it before this Emma news kind of had uh, had broke. And um, but, you know, we talked much more about what happened this summer, how she learned and where she is going forward, both from club and uh, country going forward. So check that out. That'll be in your feed later on this week. All right. Where to now? Next up, the MLS playoffs. We had four games this weekend. We'll begin in the West. LAFC finished off Vancouver with a 1-0 away win. Dennis Buanga converted a very uh, hotly contested penalty. Sartini wasn't happy with that decision. He felt like Vancouver should have had their own penalty. And he was really unhappy at the end of the game when the referee got in the way of a uh, Vancouver player when they were attacking. LAFC broke the other way. Buang ended up scoring. It did get chalked off or off sides, but Sartini was really unhappy with that whole sequence. He got himself sent off. And then in the uh, post-game press conference, he went off on the officials. Uh, he said he's probably going to be suspended for uh, the first games of next season. Uh, nevertheless, LAFC move on. Vancouver are done. All right. I love Vanny Sartini because he gives us plenty to talk about. He is an incredible 
character. Uh, I think he's an interesting personality. Um, I think that he has been at times a good coach. I don't know if he ultimately is going to be a great coach, but that certainly hasn't happened yet. Uh, they once again uh, are, you know, fail to be able to win in a playoff type of scenario. And this reaction and these antics after the game, I think were incredibly strategic. All right. He, in this moment, completely deflected from the fact that his team lost in front of a uh, historic 30,000-plus crowd over there in Vancouver, lost to uh, LAFC, and ultimately couldn't find a way to get back in the game. Now, does he have a right to be aggrieved by that last play? Yes, a couple of things. Um, While we know that the referee, when the ball hits the referee, uh, the laws have changed so that you do stop the game and give the ball back to the team that lost the ball and lost possession in that moment because of the referee. But the referee is still part of the field, especially when a player bumps the uh, bumps into him. And at that point, Vancouver was pushing all of their players uh, players forward. Also, it should be noted that VAR came back in, saw that there was an offside, dumb, dumb offside, by the way, lack of... Uh, uh, recognition of where you are on the field and what the circumstances are on the field when it comes to uh, LAFC, and they pulled the uh, pulled the uh, the goal back. But it it again, instead of people talking about the fact that the team lost, they're talking about uh, Sartini and his and his antics. And I think that that was by design because he took it all upon himself. And I guess in a way. That was smart because it deflects from the fact that you lost at home. Uh, another team eliminated the one seed in the West, St. Louis. They fell 2-1 away to SKC. Dembe and Shallowy with the goals. Pompeo pulled one back late. Uh, most everybody is still praising St. Louis for an incredible debut season. No big deal that you went out in the playoffs like this. You had a bit more measured comment uh, on Twitter this morning. You feel like this playoff elimination does take some of the luster away of their season. Yeah. I mean, you, you are playing in MLS. You came into MLS as an expansion team. And with the understanding and the recognition that for the past 30 years, it has been, is, and will continue to be for the foreseeable future about winning MLS Cup. And with all due respect to the Supporter Shield and, you know, find me a Supporter Shield uh, winner who, you know, talks about how great the Supporter Shield is and I'll find you someone that's bombed out in the MLS playoffs. It is about MLS Cup. And, and this is not to take away from the incredible regular season that St. Louis had. But when it counted the most, they hit the bed. And, and by the way, they lost at home. All right. They were was the was the only game other than the you know the penalty shot earlier where the home team, which is what you get from your play through the regular season, the advantage that you get, you pissed it away. And then you went back on the other side. And not only that, you lost to your quote unquote interstate rivals and certainly your biggest rival in terms of proximity. And a team that in the first 10 games didn't have a win and only had three points out of 30. And so I'll, I'll swing it over to that side too. Again, praise needs to be given to Peter Vermes for coming out of the gate with you know, such a horrible, horrible run and then finding a way to get back and not only doing that, but then going and beating none other than St. Louis 
in two games, not even needing the three games, and the lower seed, uh, lower seed doing it. So congratulations, St. Louis. You had a great regular season, a historic regular season for an expansion team. Pat on the back, but don't you know, break your arm patting yourself on the back because then you followed it up with an absolute failure. So a complete success from a regular season standpoint and a complete and utter failure from a playoff pr- uh, perspective. And SKC, an increasingly popular pick to win the whole thing. A lot of people feel like they're peaking at the right time. They might be, be playing better than anybody right now. Uh, also in the West this weekend, Dallas stayed alive. A 3-1 home win over Seattle. Ariola, Jesus Ferreira from the penalty spot. And Obreon with their goals. Jordan Morris scored for the Sounders. So that series is 1-1. The decisive game will be Friday at Lumen Field. And I think what we're going to, we're going to see now is ultimately who the best team is. And, and that's, I guess, a silver lining, if you will, about these three-game series is that you know, because we have this amount of data, I guess it would be, on these two teams, the true best team is going to come out. And I'm, I, I still don't know who the best team is. But now we're going to go back to, uh, to Seattle and give, I guess, what the, the leaders at MLS want, which is this third game scenario and the drama that comes with it and the pressure that comes with it. And if I said, who's a better team, Seattle or Dallas? Dallas, just from a uh, standings perspective, you know, is the seventh ranked team and Seattle is the number two ranked team. But I, I don't know. If Seattle really is a better team, then over the course of three games, they should find a way to prove that. But Dallas came right back and said, all right, you know, we are, we are not dead. And they finished the chances that they got, unlike that first game. And now everything to play for. So this is, uh, is going to be fun. And, and again, if you have a three-game scenario, from a neutral perspective, I would much rather that it goes to the three games so that we are given that kind of gift of a third game where everything is now on the line and the drama and the pressure that comes with that. Uh, we're taping this on Monday morning tonight. RSL hosts Houston in game two of that series. Houston won the first game at home. All right. And then we transition to the Eastern Conference. Uh, Cincinnati finished off the Red Bulls in dramatic fashion. It was a 1-1 final. Tom Barlow scored for the Red Bulls. And then Bupenza, sensational counterattack by Cincinnati, exchanged passes with Lucio Acosta and then scored a left-footed strike to make it 1-1. Cincinnati thought they had won it in the stoppage time with an Olimpico Acosta goal. It got chalked off. We go to penalties. The decisive penalty, Celentano denies Reyes. Uh, The shootout win counts as a win in this format. So Cincinnati off to the next round. The Red Bulls are done. Uh, The Red Bulls are done, and they got beaten by a better team. And, you know, Cincinnati the ease in which Cincinnati kind of countered into that space. And while it didn't show up on the scoreboard, um, you know, Acosta was again great. And just he's just so smooth and smart and efficient in the way that he plays and he makes everybody else better. And especially when you give them space to, uh, to go. Um, should be noted, though, that uh, Matt Miazga, the uh, defender for Cincinnati will not be available for their first game of the next series because Matt Miazga is a heel. And while I love Matt Miazga because I think sports and entertainment, and they are but one and the same, need more heels, this, this was dumb. This was dumb. And you get back into the locker room and you look at Matt Miazga and say, look, I get it. This is your stick, right? I understand 
you you like to poke the bear. I get it. You like to get under people's skin. But he scored his uh, shootout penalty. And then, you know, with his gestures and with his antics after, received a what would be a second yellow card. And so now he's out. And again, you get back and you look at him and say, you dumb, dumb boy. What are you doing? You have, because you couldn't control yourself in that moment. And I'm not, look, just blow a kiss. That's it. That's all you need to do. And I know he's from Jersey and I know he's former Red Bull player and all that kind of stuff, but you had to, you had to make it about you. And look, in sports, whether it's, you know, goons, uh, you know, in, in hockey, for example, you take the good with the bad. You have a guy that's kind of an enforcer and you know that they're going to do things, but in doing that, they're going to be in the penalty box, which put your, puts your team as a, at a disadvantage. And in this moment, because he wanted to make it about himself, he put his team at as a disadvantage going forward. And he has a real issue with that. You remember his antics at the Gold Cup yep. against Panama. The U.S., amazingly enough, still won the Fair Play Award at that tournament, which I joke that Miazga should be the one to go up and collect that award. <laughs> but <laughs> incidentally, the, a yellow in the shootout doesn't count as a second yellow. So it wasn't a red. It's yellow card accumulation that's prompting him to be suspended. That's kind of a quirky rule thing that I so learned. So wait, so, <laughs> so his yellow that he got in the shootout. That's what I read. Yeah, that's how that's, uh, that works. So then why is he out? Yellow card accumulation. But it counts as yellow card accumulation. Yes. yes. Okay, so it doesn't count as his second one of the game. Right, right. But it still counts as you got another one, so it's an accumulation. So right. whatever. I mean... It doesn't make it any less dumb. No, no, of course, of course not. <laughs> um, Columbus, Atlanta, game two is on Tuesday in Atlanta. Columbus won game one. Uh, also that same night, uh, Nashville will host Orlando, looking to stay alive. Orlando won game one at home. And then uh, also in the East, the 4-5 matchup, Philadelphia-New England game two would be on Wednesday. Philadelphia won game one. New England hosts game two. All right, so again, we have Houston tonight. So by the time you're listening to this, uh, either Houston or Real Salt Lake will have gone on. Then we have two games tomorrow night, right? Uh, yep. With uh, Columbus and uh, Columbus versus Atlanta and Orlando versus Nashville. And then New England, who have kind of been sitting around, basically. they need New England and, and Philadelphia kind of need a preseason <laughs> for, to get ready for their second game of the, uh, of the playoffs. They play on uh, November 8th. So again, this, this wacky type of schedule continues on. But it's, it gives us soccer almost every single night, which is something that I love. Uh, a couple of news couple uh, of items, MLS too. news items, yes. We've talked about Luis Suarez coming to MLS to play alongside Lionel Messi, who just became the first active MLS player to win the Ballon d'Or, an award that was presented to him by David Beckham, who famously came to MLS in 2007. Amidst all this exciting DP news, Chicharito's contract with the Galaxy has run out. He posted a farewell message on social media. It's unclear whether he's going to leave MLS altogether or whether somebody else might sign him. But you might remember when Chicharito joined the Galaxy in 2020, it was hailed as one of the two or three monumental move-the-needle signings in MLS history because he's Mexican, it's Los Angeles. Uh, four years later, 38 goals in 74 matches. Uh, when you reflect on Chicharito's time with the Galaxy and potentially his time in MLS if he does leave the league altogether, what say you? I think in totality, it was, I mean, you had to make the signing. So that's not in question, uh, whether you're the Galaxy or anybody else. When Chicharito is available, you can afford him. You have space, uh, you know, given the player that he was, uh, given his age and given the moment. I, I have no problem with, uh, with saying that. However, it didn't work out. It was a failure. All right. Uh, he didn't lead the team in the way that you wanted him to. Scored goals, but you know, because of injuries and 
uh, you know, difficulties and challenges on and off the field because he also came to the Galaxy at a point where they weren't that good and continue to not be that good. I think ultimately it's, I mean, it, it pales in comparison to David Beckham, who did start off uh, his LA Galaxy career um, in, uh, you know, in a very weak and, um, you know, poor way and turned it into an incredible success. Chicharito did not do that. So I don't think that his time in, in, uh, in MLS, if it's done from an MLS perspective, um, is going to be looked at as, you know, anything other than a side note. I will say injuries were obviously a yeah. factor. The two middle seasons, the numbers are quite good. 35 goals and 53 MLS appearances on, on not that great a team. So he, there were moments there where he was pretty prolific. Yeah, but you know, staying healthy is an art and a skill. And some people have it and some people don't. And certainly of late, uh, he hasn't. I, I, know, I don't know if this is the end for him. Uh, 35 years old right now. So he might have some offers out there in MLS or around the world. Who knows? Saudi Arabia? I don't know. With Chicharito and Douglas Costa leaving, the Galaxy have two DP slots available. Be interesting to see how much pull they still have at a time when Messi and Luis Suarez and players like that are coming to the league. LAFC have become what they've become. This is kind of a make-or-break offseason for the Galaxy. We'll see what they do with those two DP slots. Well, it's also make-or-break for Greg Vanny. I mean, Greg Vanny has to you know, be the, the luckiest guy out there because he has survived and continued on through all this at a time and in a situation where... Most big teams, and I still consider LA a big team, would have cleaned house and gotten rid of him and pretty much everybody else. But they evidently are sticking with him. And he is going to have the opportunity, like you mentioned, to sign a couple new DPs. And I think that the Galaxy, when that whistle blows at the beginning of the 24 season, I think they're going to look very different. But they'll still have high expectations. And I think Greg Vanny is going to be in a very, very short leash, uh, short leash if he continues on. And it looks by all accounts, that he's going to continue on. The other interesting story, Portland are close to hiring Phil Neville as their next coach. Now, this has drawn criticism on multiple levels. The more mundane soccer level is, there are people that feel like Phil Neville keeps getting jobs despite there not being all that much evidence that he's a good coach. And then the non-soccer aspect of the story is he's had some controversial tweets over the years that were deemed sexist. Uh, obviously, that city is very sensitive about that. They dealt with that Paul Riley scandal in the NWSL with the Thorns. Also, the Timbers, the Andy Polo situation. So the Timbers supporters group put out a statement saying they're against this hire. Now, the only thing I'll say about it is they said they're against it because of his sexist tweets and his lousy coaching pedigree. You kind of have to pick a lane on that. When you combine those two, it suggests that if he was a great coach, right. you could live with the sexist tweets. So that was a bit weird. Yeah, Portland being sensitive is redundant, okay? <laughs> uh, you know, Portland going to Portland, and this is, uh, this is what they do. And look, I, I, in this day and age, you know, you know, casting the first stone and all that kind of stuff, I, I, you know, I would, I would be interested to, you know, look at the text chains of the people that, uh, you know, put out these statements and, you know, the, the pitchforks and everything uh, out there. And, and look, if you want to be against this hire because you don't think he's a good coach, fair enough. Uh, and you, and you can make a fair and reasonable type, uh, type of argument given what's, uh, given what's, what's gone on. Um, I think he can be a good coach. I think he understands, uh, the league. And I actually think from a, a Portland perspective, I mean, look, they hired, uh, 
well, I guess their most successful coach in history in terms of Caleb Porter. He never coached a single professional game before in his life. Now he had had success at the, uh, at the collegiate level, but as far as MLS and professional, he hadn't, uh, he hadn't, uh, done, uh, done anything. So, uh, you know, if this gets past the line and the line <laughs> may be, well, while the Portland leadership might want to hire him, we know, and you talk about power, we know the power that the Portland Timbers fan base has, and they're incredibly vocal. And that in and of itself is not necessarily a, uh, a bad thing. And who knows, maybe they will wield that power in a way to change what they feel is not appropriate for their club. So you do you, Portland. <laughs> and everybody else will kind of sit back and roll their eyes and laugh at you. Um, but I still love you up there, you know. You continue to be weird and sensitive. That is it. All right, let's take another quick break. And when we come back, we will take a look around Europe because there was all sorts of stuff. I mean, we could do a two-hour podcast today, really, with all the stuff that we uh, are trying to get to. But we won't do two hours. Uh, But uh, we'll take a quick break and we'll come back and talk about that. Okay, welcome back. Let's take a little trip around Europe, Mossy, because there was all sorts of stuff that we need to talk about. Yeah, we begin in Germany. When we taped our last podcast on Wednesday afternoon, we mentioned that Dortmund had beaten Hoffenheim in the German Cup that day. Gio started, played 70 minutes, played well. We both felt like his situation was trending in the right direction. That same day, Bayern suffered one of the most humiliating defeats in club history. They fell to third-tier Sauerbrook and Eric Winalda's former club, which led to all sorts of recriminations, the directors blasting the players. So we wondered what that would mean for Der Klassiker this weekend. What it meant was that Bayern came out on fire. They scored two quick goals en route to an emphatic 4-0 away victory. Harry Kane with a hat-trick. We'll get to him in a minute, but I want to do Gio first. An unused substitute. Dortmund made five changes. None of them was Gio Reyna in a game in which they needed an offensive spark. So that had U.S. soccer Twitter up in arms. This situation is almost reaching Pulisic-Chelsea levels where a lot of people feel like he needs to get out of there. Yeah. I mean, you know, the Germans, they have this this, uh, wonderful ability to have words for things that we don't have necessarily words for, you know, schadenfreude and all that kind of stuff. Whatever the German word is for uh, washing your hands of a situation, it needs to be used here for Gio Reyna because you want no part (laughs) of this uh, this performance from a a Dortmund standpoint. Is it concerning? I, I don't know if it's more or less concerning than than we have talked about in the past. And I also don't know what Gio's appetite is for going someplace else and that's not a that's not a knock on him necessarily but at some point he also has to come and i guess his representation has to come and say this is this is no longer tenable this is not something that we continue can continue on and maybe they have done in the past and they just haven't found the right type of exit strategy but there has to be an exit strategy when it comes to geo and then okay so take the geo part of it away this was this this was bad for Dortmund. Just one thought on Gio. Sure. Uh, Pulisic's situation at Chelsea was disappointing, but not all that surprising because Chelsea is a club that's all over the place. Uh, this Gio situation is an interesting turn because Dortmund's whole identity and financial model is built on developing young players and then being able to sell them off uh, at a profit to the super clubs. And I'm sure at one point they had Gio pegged as somebody they were going to be able to cash in on. And 
Eden Terzic is not Pep Guardiola. He doesn't have the juice to single-handedly make this decision that they're going to give up on Gio. So if the club hierarchy was still really high on Gio, they would overrule Terzic and tell him to play him more. So it does make me wonder about his overall standing at that club and what it, where his future lies. I mean, is it a situation where they would be willing to part with him for very little money in January, as has been reported in some places? Well, they're all, not everything is going to work out. And and to your point, a, a lot of what Dortmund has touched relative to the fostering of young players and you know then selling them for big money, it's been incredible. Their their track record, and from a I guess a business perspective, it has to be applauded and praised. But they're not all going to work out. But if they thought that there was a big payday type of situation out there, and there was that value, they would want to have him on the field as much as uh, as much as possible. But to your point, they have obviously figured out that from a competitive standpoint, this is not something that the that that uh, that makes sense. Although losing four nothing to Bayern home uh, certainly can maybe change the way that they feel. On Harry Kane, this was already his third hat-trick of this Bundesliga campaign. He has 15 goals and five assists in 10 Bundesliga games. The single-season Bundesliga record is 41 goals by Robert Lewandowski. Uh, Harry Kane is well on his way to breaking that record. And again, we all know that when it comes to Bayern Munich in domestic play, there's only a couple of times a season where they are actually tested. doesn't mean that they they can't lose, but... You know, one of those times traditionally has been Dortmund. So when Harry Kane scores and then scores goals against a Dortmund, I think that there is added value to what he is doing. All of that is to say is it cannot, you know, knock on wood, he stays healthy, but it cannot have gone any better this move over to Germany. Not that he's scoring goals. We all know that he's one of the great goal scorers in the world, but he looks happy. He's being fed. It is geared towards having this, you know, new version of, I mean, he's not like a, closer or anything like that in i mean he's just a different type of player but when those moments come in the box he knows exactly where his bread is buttered and he is there and it is kind of all funneled into hey you put that ball in that area it looks simple but it's not necessarily simple to do it on a consistent basis and he is doing and he scored a bunch of different goals and when you're scoring goals against dortmund that says to me a whole lot more than when you're scoring, you know, against the uh, lower level of the, uh, of well, not even the lower, lower two-thirds of the Bundesliga. We both said Jude Bellingham is the early favorite for the 2024 Ballon d'Or, but if Kane keeps playing like this and Bayern were to win the Champions League and then see what happens at the Euros Ooh, with both Kane and Bellingham, I think Kane could end up being the one that wins that award. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. That would be, that would be... That would be interesting if, if ultimately, uh, ultimately that happened. By the way, did you see uh, Tokel's interview after the game uh, where he uh, got all pissy? and With Lothar Mateus, <laughs> our, our former Fox Sports exactly. colleague. Well, if Lothar's involved, then you know there's going to be you know, some, uh, some friction over there. But yeah, he got all angry and went off. And not for nothing, it's a great result, but you still lost to Saarbrücken in the, uh, in the cup. And so whatever criticism you got, I think it's pretty warranted. Uh, in terms of uh, in terms of what happened, so anyway, but good win for uh, for him and for uh, for Bayern Munich. We head to England, where it was another weekend of VAR ridiculousness. Now <laughs> there was a lot of controversy surrounding Manchester United's disallowed goal against Fulham. Scott McTominay, letter of the law, that was actually the correct call because yeah. Harry Maguire clearly interfered with that play. So had it been just that, then my take today would have been, oh, there they go again in England complaining about VAR when it does its job. But then the Newcastle-Arsenal game happened, and that was a bit of a VAR apocalypse. Uh, Havertz probably should have been sent off. Bruno Guimanes definitely should have been sent off. And then the Newcastle goal, 
scored by Anthony Gordon. There were three different things they looked at on that play, whether the ball was out of bounds, whether Gordon was offsides, and whether Joe Eddington fouled Gabriel. Um, the out of bounds and the offside, okay, those were tricky ones. Uh, depends on the angles. The, the one that I can't believe they didn't call was the foul. I thought that was a clear shove in the back, uh, which should have negated that goal. Arteta was furious afterwards. Uh, yet again, we're talking about VAR in England. Well, of the three on, the, on that play, you're absolutely right. That that's the one that I think everybody would have shrugged and said, all right, yeah, he pushed him uh, going forward. So that, that wasn't called. Okay. Um, let me go back to the, uh, uh, the Havertz tackle. That's a red card, all right? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a dumb, dumb play. <laughs> and had they come up with a red card, nobody would have said anything. And he's a lucky, lucky player to, to have continued on. Uh, secondly, the Bruno elbow, I mean, that's a, that's a bull play, man. That is, and has nothing to do with soccer. I mean, at least Havertz, there's a soccer element to it in that you're slide tackling. I, I, that one, I cannot fathom how. And this goes back to something else, Mossy, where I think because, you know, because everybody's up in arms about, you know, this call wasn't made and this call wasn't made, and a lot of them were subjective. The, the interaction and the, um, I guess, the communication with these referees, with the VAR and down on the field, I think that that provides context. And I think it can almost provide cover at times because I would have loved to have heard what that conversation was. Remember a couple of weeks ago when the conversation came out, when they did, they screwed up, they, they, they messed out. But we heard these humans in real time understand that they messed up. Now, does it mean that there's no ramifications from it? No. But to understand what the possible justification for these were, unless that audio is, is played and we hear that, I think it's even more difficult to, to really understand what these men and women are doing, albeit with, uh, with technology. So the Bruno Elbow, I just, I mean, it's a, it's a bull move man and that's and and it's it's dangerous it has no place in the game and i i can't fathom what are you thinking in that moment you know i love him but he was way too amped up for this game it looked like he was trying to get sent off i mean i'm not suggesting i know newcastle just had another midfielder sandro tonali suspended for betting uh but it almost looked like bruno guimarães was somebody who had bet on himself getting a red card in that game and was trying really hard and the referee just refused to acquiesce all right, so then, so then you get into the, you know, the three moments, right? Right, right? So the ball going over the line, we've seen it in the past with Japan in the World Cup and stuff like that. It's called the parallax. Uh, parallax error, I think it's called uh, from a, uh, I guess a, a uh, I don't know, what is it, geometry or calculus or whatever. Um, and so just because the ball looks like from those angles from far away, that it's over the uh, line doesn't necessarily mean, and if you don't have that actual camera <clears throat> that can go directly above it and see the plane on both sides of the ball, then it's next to impossible to figure it out. So whatever, you play and you continue to play. You can scream and yell about that, but they did not have the camera angle that sufficiently showed that this was a clear and obvious error in that, in, uh, in that moment. They also didn't have the line or the actual line to be able to draw to actually show whether this was offside or not. So both of those, you know, while I guess they're subjective, 
the reality is that even in the age of technology, which everyone tells me, oh, I hate technology, you know, VAR and stuff like that. Well, here's a, here's a moment where technology isn't even at the point where it actually can decide these things and you're still pissed off about it. Technology wasn't able to tell us in those two things. And then, yes, it's subjective on that third play, but you know, you're going down to head the ball and in that, and in that moment, even a slight little push um, or even hands on the back of a player, it can mess up what you are, what you are trying to do. And, you know, then we have the post, the post game reaction. Well, it's interesting to go back to Manchester United's disallowed goal is we all talk about offsides being black and white, but there is an element of of offsides sure. that does become subjective when yep. it gets into one of those that a player interfere with the, the ball player and or interfering not. and you're, uh, you're doing, uh, doing all that. So, you know, this, this game ultimately ends all hell's breaking loose. Everybody's pissed off. And uh, did you read the uh, the statement from uh, Arteta? Yeah, he was not happy. <laughs> well, I get it that he's not happy. We talked about Santini uh, uh, earlier in the uh, in the pod, and you know, in that moment with the heat and you know having feeling aggrieved and understandably so, you're going to get coaches that are going to to scream and yell. And again, sometimes it's strategic in order to uh, to deflect. In this case, Arteta kind of seeing things get away from him in a year that was supposed to have built on that incredible year they had last year when things aren't, uh, aren't going your way. And he went in and he went off on uh, the moment, the decisions, what the EPL is relative to refereeing. And, you know, he's been around for 20 years and this is a disgrace and it's a shame and a sham and all that kind of stuff. And I, I get it. I I understand and and I like it. And again, it it deflects from what everything that's uh, going on out there. But you know, you're still you're still our Arsenal, and you stood you still should find a way in these moments to get the points uh, the points that you need. So, do you think anything is going to come out of this? You think that the uh, the referees will come out and apologize for something they missed. I don't think that this is like no. it was a few weeks ago. Yeah, this doesn't reach that level because, like you said, everything was subjective. So you you can, in theory, stand behind each decision that was made. Uh, next what up, else? we travel to South America. For oh wait, 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 hold on. Can minutes? I can I just say something about Luis Diaz? You uh, know, scoring. And, oh yes, of course. Absolutely. Just just in general. Um, and you know, we had started the pod talking uh, about Higita and. Um, you know, the reality is that over the years, we have seen, unfortunately, too much of this where uh, family members of famous and let's be honest, rich players are, you know, are kidnapped and taken, taken hostage. And for him to go on the field, given what's happened with his father, and for those that don't know, his, his, mom, was, his mom and his father were taken, but his mom was returned. And right now they're in the midst of trying to get his uh, father back in, uh, in Colombia. And for him to, to go on the field and, and not just to score the goal. And, and for those that saw, he scored a goal and then lifted up his shirt and uh, Libertad uh, para papa, I think it was, you know, freedom for his, his father. It just, I mean, it's, it's beyond soccer or, or, kicking, uh, or kicking a ball. And I hope that this all ends um, happily in a way uh, so that his father is returned but I just can't even imagine putting on your, you know, your soccer cleats and walking out there. And maybe it's where you're most comfortable, and therefore it's the ability to 
you know, to not have to think about these horrible things uh, that you're thinking about. And, you know, after the game, Klopp was really, you know, great in terms of talking about, yeah, this is a wonderful from a competitive and soccer perspective, but it doesn't change the fact that this, this young man's father is being held, uh, held hostage after being kidnapped. So I hope that, that it, it gets resolved. Um, and, you know, I just, just wanted to mention that. Anyway. And he is Colombian, so there is a segue to talking South American football. On Saturday, uh, Fluminense defeated Boca Juniors 2-1 in extra time in the Copa Libertadores final. They win that competition for the first time. They're the 11th different Brazilian club to win it. It's the fifth straight year that a Brazilian club has won it, which is a record. Um, a few American soccer tie-ins here. The game-winning goal by Fluminense in extra time was scored by a player named John Kennedy, which was also the name of the 35th president of the United States. We're coming up on the 60th year anniversary <laughs> of his assassination. Yep, yep. When uh, the CIA and mafia and Cuban exiles conspired to assassinate him. <laughs> um, secondly, uh, by virtue of this triumph, Fluminense, they qualify obviously for the upcoming Club World Cup next month in Saudi Arabia, which you can catch on Fox Sports, which is going to include Manchester City, Leon, Al Itihad, which is the Kareem Benzema and Golo Kante team from Saudi Arabia. It should be fun. But more importantly for us, they also qualify for the first edition of that expanded Club World Cup in 2025, which will be in the United States. They also qualify for this Copa Interamericana. Now, they're still trying to figure out the dates for this, but in theory, uh, CONCACAF and CONBOL want to stage this four-team tournament which would be the Libertadores winner, Fluminense, the Sudamericana winner, LDU Quito, the CCL winner, Leon, and the League's Cup winner, Inter-Miami. So of course uh, they at, at <laughs> some point in 2024, in theory, we're going to have a four-team tournament involving Fluminense and Inter-Miami. So uh, U.S. fans will, will get a look at uh, Fluminense over the next couple of years. The other American tie-in I want to bring up here is the buildup to this match was marred by um, all sorts of fan incidents in Rio de Janeiro, Fluminense and Boca Juniors fans clashing. Uh, there's been a lot of talk the last couple of years about a Libertadores final possibly being held in the United States. And in the buildup to this match, there were reports that the Brazilian Federation actually proposed to Conmebol, why not hold this match uh, in the United States? They ended up keeping it in at the Maracanã. But I think there's momentum building towards that. And, and fan incidents like the ones we witnessed ahead of this match, uh, I think, reinforce that belief that it might be better and safer to take this match somewhere else. So I, it would not surprise me in the next few years if we see Copa Libertadores finals being held in the United States. How does that hit you? Yeah, try to bring that down to uh, Venice Beach, right? And you see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Those are incredible scenes, Copacabana I mean, Beach. what the hell? Yeah, you're watching it and, you know, people are running all over. It's just complete, you know, free-for-all. Um, yeah, I, I, get, I mean, if it's if it's from a security standpoint, it, the, I mean, they're gonna make they would make plenty of money too. But yeah, it's so. Explain to me though, um, why Fluminense? I mean, why why should people care about Fluminense? Why is this such a, a dramatic type of thing? It's the first time that they uh, that they have won. Um, is is this the start of something great, or is this a moment of brief shining brilliance? Well. Here's why it matters to me. Um, their coach, Fernando Geniz, is, is currently doubling up as the head coach of the Brazilian national team. And he is a romantic. Uh, there are actually stories written in the New York Times and other places ahead of this match sort of talking about him as a potentially revolutionary figure. Uh, he certainly is in Brazilian uh, domestic football, which despite Brazil's reputation as the land of Jogo Bonito, uh, Brazilian domestic football the last 20, 30 years has actually become incredibly pragmatic. And so he really stands out in that context. And he's a guy that's all about possession and 
interchanging and 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 dominating games. He's al- almost like a Bielsa-like figure who up until this triumph was considered a guy that, oh, sure, he's this romantic, but he doesn't have the resume as far as uh, trophies to back it up. Now he does. So it'll be interesting to see if he can inspire other Brazilian coaches to do the same. And perhaps if he were to get the job permanently with the national team, although it still sounds like they want to bring in Ancelotti, <laughs> you know, he could maybe get Brazil back to playing the sort of football that people remember from a different age, 82 and 70, et cetera. So um, from a footballing perspective, uh, that's why this story is interesting to me and to see where it goes. Now, I mentioned it's the fifth straight year that a Brazilian club has won it. There's also that narrative. There is concern that Brazilian clubs have a massive financial advantage right now and it's leading to an unhealthy degree of domination and Comnebol might have to step in and institute a salary cap or financial fair play or something because th- this is not good overall for the continent to have one country dominating to this degree yeah i mean it's it's not but it's not it, it's not brazil's fault i guess it's part of the the problem that they have to deal with in the reality but um you know i know because you are on this pod we talk more about brazil than maybe other places um and that's good because you inform people that watch and listen and you inform me with what's going on. Is this, does this mean that Brazil from a league perspective, which that we know has kind of been out of sight, out of mind for a lot of people and hasn't been looked at anything more for the most part in terms of the global impact as an incubator for incredible talent. Does this fill you with belief and pride that it's heading in the right direction? Not really, because the financial model in Brazil has increasingly become to sell your top academy players as young as possible. You know, Europe is very seduced by the promise and potential of Brazilian teenagers, so they're willing to pay big money. And so you sell those players as as uh, early as possible, you cash in, and then you use that money to build a team uh, around more experienced players, players that failed in Europe and came back or veterans at the end of their careers. And so, yes, um, Brazilian clubs are having this incredible success, but it's not like you turn on the TV, you watch them play and you see five or six young players that you think, oh my God, these are all going to be on the national team a few years from now. The only guy really Fluminense has that sort of fits that ilk is this midfielder, Andrea, who might go to Liverpool in January. He's a youngster who I've mentioned before is the heir apparent to Casemiro, but that's one guy on the entire team. The other stars are this journeyman Argentinian striker, Germán Cano. You saw Marcelo, Marcelo at, right? running around. That was pretty cool. Though. Yeah, I mean, so, so yeah, so it doesn't quite mean what I think okay. you're suggesting no, okay. it might Sorry. mean. Uh, but one more Brazilian soccer story with an American tie-in. When we taped our last <laughs> podcast on yeah. Wednesday, that same night, there was a top-of-the-table clash in the Brasileirão, Botafogo hosted Palmeiras. Botafogo was up 3-0 at the half. They ended up losing 4-3. They had a center back, Adrielson, controversially sent off in the second half, which contributed to Palmeiras' comeback. Botafogo are owned by an American, John Texer. A couple years ago, they changed the rule in Brazil where you can go from a sporting club to a corporation. Botafogo was one of the first clubs to do it, and they were bought by an American businessman. John Texer also owned Lyon Crystal Palace. He was at this game. At the final whistle, he stormed the field to complain about the officiating. He then gave this fiery, completely unhinged interview, dropping F-bombs, saying it was corruption, saying there's a conspiracy against his team, calling on the Brazilian Federation president to resign. And this went viral. Everybody from Max Bredos to World Soccer Talk was posting. And the big takeaway in the U.S. soccer Twitter sphere was MLS could use more owners like this. We love this passion. Uh, I have thoughts from a Brazilian perspective, but w- what say you seeing an American yeah, I, behave that I way? I watched it and I, <laughs> I giggled 
I mean, I just I thought it was funny. It's interesting how this never happens after a team wins. Okay, <laughs> it's always to complain about you know a, a red card or you know the referees and this is the league that you bought into. And if you want to change it, you're one of the owners. So change it. Figure out a way to change it. But I get why this appeals. It, it, this is catnip to supporters groups and to fans. And, you know, just for randoms like myself watching from the outside, I, I would want my president kind of doing that. Interesting, years ago when I played down in, uh, in Ecuador for Emelec, I remember our, our president at the time and the owner at the time coming on the field after I got a, a red card and screaming and yelling at the referees, following them back into the room uh, about, you know, screaming and yelling about the red card and all this kind of stuff. So this is, again, it's, it's there is a theatrical aspect to it. It is performative at times in order to show that, oh, I'm, I'm in it and, I'm, and this is passionate and we are being put upon. No, you just let four goals in after you were up three nothing. Uh, to me, it speaks to how the atmosphere surrounding Brazilian football can drag anybody into the mud because John Texer was not like this when he first arrived. And I mentioned he also owned Lyon Crystal Palace. He would never behave like that in those countries because there's a certain decorum that's expected of a club owner. We mentioned Liverpool getting burned on that VAR deal a few weeks back. Did you hear John Henry come out and drop F-bombs and complain about conspiracies against his but team? You, you knew what you were getting into. <laughs> I mean, you're supposed to be this great businessman. Then do your due diligence yeah. and figure it out. And if you are going to go into it, go in with eyes wide open and an understanding that this is how I'm going to affect change if that's actually what you want to do. But now to be, oh, I can't believe this. Oh, this is going on. You knew what you were getting into. Anyway. Our last order of business in this segment, uh, match day four of the UEFA Champions League is upon us. Uh, some of the games we have our eye on, Borussia Dortmund will host Newcastle. Dortmund won at St. James Park match day three. This is our next chance to follow this Gio Reyna saga and see <laughs> yep. if he starts or plays or whatever. Um, AC Milan plays host to PSG. Remember, Milan got drilled at the Parc de Prince match day three. Christian Pulisic sat out this past weekend. Uh, Musa there's started. Footage of, there's footage of him training today. So yeah, they back. lost at home to Udinese, but it looks like he'll be back for this game. We're going to revisit Pulisic's absence in the Ask Alexi segment. We've got an interesting question about a possible statistical way to measure his importance to AC Milan. Uh, Napoli will play host to Union Berlin. Union Berlin in disastrous form. Uh, the latest defeat uh, this past weekend against Eintracht Frankfurt. Both Brendan Aronson and Paxson Aronson subbed on late, so they were on the field for a few minutes together. Uh, United away to Copenhagen. Remember, they won in dramatic fashion match day three on Nana saving that penalty at the end. And then PSV host Lons. PSV coming off a 6-0 win over Heracles at the weekend. Malik Tillman and Ricardo Pepe both scored in that game. Okay, so I have, uh, let's see, I got Newcastle winning away. I have PSG winning away at Milan. I have Napoli beating Union, Union Berlin. I got, oof, Copenhagen, Manchester United. All right, I'm going to go after that first game. Oof. Um zero zero there. And then I got PSV over Long. Uh which one did you say the first game? Dortmund Newcastle? I got Newcastle winning. Oh wow. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I'm crazy. Uh, I'm crazy like that. All right, there you have it. All right, let's take another quick break. And when we come back, as you mentioned, we'll have some interesting stuff when it comes to our Ask Alexi segment. Okay, welcome back. It's time for Ask Alexi, that part of the show where you send in your comments, questions, and concerns, and you can do it on all the, the social media 
platforms out there, and our handle is SOTU with Alexi. Uh, use that hashtag, Ask Alexi. Or you can call into our State of the Union podcast hotline, which is 657-549-2297. That is 657-549-2297. What do we got uh, this show, Mossy? Uh, we have a voicemail. Let's take a listen right now. Hi, this is Mike from Castleton, New York. And I had a question for both of you. Alexi, because I think you used to play some hockey, and Mossy, because you're the stat man. Uh, when Milan played Napoli, uh, Pulisic started, and they went up 2 nothing. And then when Pulisic came off, then Napoli scored two and tied it up. Do you think soccer could use the plus-minus stat that is used in hockey? Would that be a valuable uh, thing to look at? Thanks a lot. Love the show. I'll talk to you later. All right. Uh, thank you, Mike, from uh, Castleton, New York. Yeah, so uh, we've said before that, uh, at least I, I've said before, I think that soccer is, um, of the professional sports out there, I think the most difficult to predict. It has the most chaos, if you will. Um, and many great men and women over the course of many, many years have tried to figure out a way to give it some sort of rhyme and reason uh, through data and stats and numbers and formulas and all that kind of stuff. Some of it um, has given us a better glimpse into what the uh, the sport is. Um, yeah, when it comes to hockey and, and plus minus, it, you know, it'd be very easy to do it. I do think that there are differences. There's plenty of similarities between soccer and hockey. And one of the reasons why I gravitated to hockey was not just, you know, growing up in Michigan, but I, I enjoyed the geometry of it. I enjoyed the, um, uh, the movement of it that at times, uh, is very similar to what happens in soccer. But there are also massive differences in the constantly changing shifts of players as opposed to soccer where you have your substitutes and you play much longer periods and then you uh, ultimately make the changes. So the the game that a player is coming into as a substitute in the end, you know, the last 30 minutes of the game is is a very different game. It's a very different si- situation and circumstance than 30 minutes before. And I know in hockey, you could say the same thing about, you know, a different period and uh, different relative to the scoreline. So I, like I said, I think it would be easy to do. And I do think that it's done. I think that coaches, whether they do it by design and their staffs are putting together, whatever they ultimately call it, uh, or they just understand that, hey, when this player is on the field, we are better. And historically, when this player is on the field, we win, we score. Uh, we have more of the ball, whatever it ends up being. So if you're using Christian Pulisic as an example, that's not necessarily a reason to take Christian Pulisic off the field at any, uh, at any given moment. Because if it's a coaching decision in that moment, you are doing it theoretically because Christian Pulisic is spent. And I'm just using Christian as an example. He's spent, he's, you know, he's run his race. And now you need to put reinforcements in that physically are better. And maybe psychologically, they are better coming in as a substitute to give you the best chance of, uh, uh, best chance of success. But just because Christian Pulisic comes off the field in that moment, I know it's, it's easy to extrapolate it out and say, well, if you'd kept him on for the last 20 minutes, he would have continued to do the same things that he was doing in that previous part of the game. And that's, it's not always as clear as that. Mossy? 
Yeah, it's far from perfect, but I don't hate it. If you get a large enough sample and a team performs much better with a guy on the field versus off, it tells you something. So yeah, it's another additional stat to throw into the mix. But there's plenty of stats out there that coaches and coaching staffs are privy to. I mean, it doesn't take any, it doesn't take, (laughs) you don't need a computer to figure it out as to, you know, when this guy starts, we have been better. Uh, When I play this formation, we are better. And so if and when all things are being equal and everybody is healthy and you have to make that, you know, so, so for example, we talk a lot about that moment that we still haven't had from a U.S. men's national team perspective when everybody's healthy and all this talent that we're talking about is healthy. And hopefully when that moment comes, you will have built up some sort of database that shows you that, you know what, while, for example, while Gio Reyna is a great player, we are better as a team when it's Tyler Adams and Musa and Weston McKinney in that midfield. And it's Balogun and Wea and Pulisic. And there's just not space for him. And the data says that when we do that against this type of team, we are going to be better. Um, so while it might not be specific and specifically called what you want it to be called, Mike, when it comes to plus and minus, these types of assessments are happening constantly. And you or I, we're not telling coaches anything new or different. Now, from a public perspective, I think it would be a nice add-on in terms of a column as to, you know, your plus and minus. You know, uh, how often were you on the field when your team scored goals relative to being on the field when your team didn't score uh, or got scored against and have that be, you know, one of those columns. So, yeah. All right. What else you got uh, there, Mossy? Next up, we have an X question. Chase asks, is it too early to put up Christmas decorations? Okay, this is a, uh, an evergreen, a fur, if you will, uh, when it comes to questions and debates in the Christmas season. And whether you realize it or not, the Christmas season is upon us. Now, a lot of this debate is framed around the angst, the anxiety, and the anger that comes from seeing Christmas decorations, usually in the form of commerce, right? Because it is a trigger that lets people know that Christmas is coming and you have to spend money and you have to shop. And there is a, you know, a kind of pressure and angst that comes uh, from that. When it comes to somebody actually putting up Christmas decorations in their environment and in their house, I know oftentimes the argument is, well, this dilutes the Christmas spirit. This makes it just like any other group of days. If you are bent out of shape by somebody utilizing the Christmas spirit in the form of decorations, be it lights, trees, whatever it ends up being, even smells, I guess, then you got a problem, okay? What this world needs more of is the Christmas spirit. Now, I'm not saying that the Christmas spirit can last 365. But if there is somebody that wants to attempt to have that Christmas spirit lift him or her up 365, who am I or you or anybody to poo-poo that? I think that is awesome. So, I don't care when you put up your lights. I don't care when you put up your tree. I don't even give a crap if you take it down or not. Keep it up all year. 
if it makes you feel better, if it helps you live a more spirited and happy, uh, and ultimately, I guess, if you're talking about the Christmas spirit, kind and giving type of life and existence, then go for it, my friend. So to answer your question, it is never too early to put up Christmas decorations. What's your cutoff for Happy New Year? If you run into somebody in February that you haven't seen yet and they'd say, hey, Happy New Year, is that that they missed the cutoff for that? No. I, I, well, I, I think I probably would say February where I would stop using it. But again, I wouldn't get bent out of shape if somebody said Happy New Year if they hadn't seen me before. Because I, I think the Happy New Year is relative to somebody that you are seeing for the first time in this new year, a year that nobody has ever lived in. So I, yeah, I, I would probably stop it in... Uh, in February, either by design or just, I would just stop thinking that that's something I need to do. Uh, anything else, Mossy? That's it. All right. Well, thank you for the, uh, the questions, uh, whether it's, uh, our voicemail over there at six, five, seven, five, four, nine, two, two, nine, seven, or our Twitter questions or any place out there, sorry, X questions out there on all the uh, social media platforms. Again, it's S O T U with Alexi. All right. We got one more segment here. We at the end of our show, you know, I give you my, uh, one for the road. So we'll do that when we get back. Okay, welcome back. It's the end of our show, and at the, uh, at the end of each and every show, I give you my one for the road. A couple of things uh, to mention here, Mossy. One, you know, we live in this, uh, this interesting and wonderful world of American soccer, podcasting, broadcast, whatever you want to call it. It covers a lot of different platforms out there. But ultimately, we talk about soccer, and as we say through a uh, red, white, and blue-colored lens in terms of uh, glasses. We are not the only ones out there. And so a congratulations, a hearty congratulations to the end of a long run uh, when it comes to Jason Davis over there on Sirius XM. We were recording this Monday. He has uh, started a new show with our friend Eric Winalda, but that means the uh, end of the United States of Soccer, which he did, I think, for eight years over there on uh, Sirius XM. And it was a show that was dedicated to you know, kind of like what we do in terms of looking. Now, he went into a whole lot more of the weeds and you're doing three hours a day. You're, you're going to do that. But, you know, dedicated to looking at this American soccer culture that we have. And, you know, he did it an incredible job. And I know not everybody else out there listens to uh, SiriusXM or has SiriusXM. And this isn't an advertisement for it. But the reality is that over the years, whether it's, you know, back in the day with fanzines or, you know, the big soccer boards, uh, you know, and onto all the different blogs and all the different podcasts that we have out there. Um, the American soccer community has found ways and places to coalesce and found places that are kind of comfort food. You know, back in the day when we had Fox Soccer Channel, I had it on constantly in the background because it was like a soundtrack for, for soccer people out there. And I know at times, you know, we, uh, <laughs> I talk about, you know, the fact that we eat our own and we can be our own worst enemy out there, but there is a community, there is a family out there that talks about this game in Jason's case on a daily basis. So I wish him well going forward. Uh, he's going to need it with, uh, with Eric Winalda. Now, interestingly, the show they're doing together is going to be called WTF, which was the same name of the show I did with Eric. So they've created a bit of a David Lee Roth, Sammy Hagar situation where <laughs> people are going to forever debate which WTF did you prefer, the Mossy version right. or the Davis version? Well, you know, it, it, we're, there's, there is plenty of room, my friend. There is plenty of room for uh, both Sammy Hagar and David Lee Roth, as I can attest to, and I can go into a long, long 
three-hour podcast if you want about that. But anyway, uh, wishing J- uh, Jason Davis all the best going forward. And thank you for years and years of great soccer uh, content out there that uh, he did. And he did it alone. And that is, uh, that is not easy. Uh, p- plenty of guests. And you know we were guests on the show many, many times. So looking uh, to bigger and better things going forward for, uh, for him. Now, when it comes to our show and the, uh, the State of the Union here, you know, we are a family. And as I said at the beginning of the show, we have bullpens. We have people coming up. We are, I like to think, fostering next generations of talent. A lot of people have come through here and gone on to other things. Eh bigger things, better things, who knows, but they have come through here and we basically uh, changed their life. We talk about our producers all the time and uh, we mentioned Sean getting married. We have pictures of said uh, marriage here. Look at this. All right. That, I mean, talk about what's the, what's the uh, football phrase out kicking your coverage or whatever. My God, Sean and Amanda there. Congratulations to Sean. Best wishes to Amanda there. Evidently that's uh, what you're supposed to say in a wedding because why would you congratulate a woman? Uh, and especially a woman that's marrying Sean. So congratulations and best wishes to them. It looked like an absolutely beautiful affair uh, with beautiful people, including Sean. This is a picture of them hugging. uh, And this was after I had requested that you give the big man a hug. And that's Kat, who's producing today's podcast. And her husband, she recently got married. There's a lot of love flying around, yeah, my yeah. friend. There's a lot of love in these uh, in these pictures. Uh, couldn't be happier for uh, for all of them. Um, you know, now they uh, now they get to start their lives, and I wish them a long and healthy and happy and successful trip and adventure together. And I hope uh, that everything goes well. He'll be back later on, and he does uh, wonderful work. But as you mentioned, we have great people behind the scenes that make us look good. And in my case, Mossy, it's not the, uh, the easiest thing. Uh, anybody else you would like to mention? Yes. Uh, you talk about the unsung heroes behind the scenes who toil away and make this podcast work. One of them is leaving us, Kiara, yes. who uh, is involved in the graphics you see and some of the editing. She's produced some of the Twitter spaces, been a big part of this podcast. She is now going to go off to work in college football and other sports. We've seen her grow from a girl to a woman. When she first started, she was still in college, Cal State Fullerton. She's since graduated college and started working here full time. Uh, No, I mean, uh, we're going to miss her. She's she's terrific. I will say there's a cautionary tale here. Over the years, people that have left this podcast to do other jobs. Remember Alex Dowd? Yes. His career imploded. I see him sometimes in Brentwood now, and I cross the street to avoid walking (laughs) past him because he has such a depressed look on his face. Uh, Frances Arthur famously left, and her career went off the rails completely. She managed to grovel her way back to Fox and and has sort of recovered, but Nevertheless, it, it's it's you leave here and you think you're moving on to better things, but you know, not as so. the uh, as the great brand Cinderella, which I know uh, whether it's Kiara or anybody else, you guys don't know, but they said don't know what you got till it's gone, and the grass always looks greener, my friend. But I I think that people eventually, sometimes immediately, but sometimes it takes a little time, eventually they realize how good they had it and what a wonderful experience it was working, and uh, so I want to thank. Uh, Kiara and everybody else that uh, makes us look good. I am 53 years old, Mossy, and I, I enjoy being surrounded by younger folks, even when I can't understand what the hell they're talking about and phrases that they're, uh, they're using. It's, it's still fun to see. And they keep, me, they keep me in line to the extent that one can. One thing that 
might tarnish Kiara's time with us. This is a Michigan-like scandal. Right. As you know, the crew here, they like to take bets on what time I'm going to walk in for our podcast tapings. And you know, she texts me sometimes and tries to coordinate what time I'm going to walk in so she can cheat and win the bet. She did so today. So I have evidence of it. I can show to people. So there's an investigation into this. She's kind of the Connor Stallions of our podcast and, and we'll see what comes of it. But uh, that's the only thing. I, I look at that as showing initiative. No. Okay. So I, I, I look at that as a check in her box, in her uh, favor in terms of what, uh, what she's doing. So yeah, uh, best of luck to her. You know, she'll be back. She'll be back. But uh, we are sending her out into the bigger world of sports out there with a wonderful, um, I like to think, experience and armed with the skills and the ability to handle anything that comes uh, her way. Anything else, my friend? That's it. All right. We went a little bit long today, but we wanted to uh, get to a lot of stuff, like we said, that was uh, happening. Look uh, for the Naomi Gurma interview in your feed later on this week, and then we'll be back with another show uh, later on this week, because I'm sure all sorts of stuff will happen, including all the MLS playoffs that continue to uh, roll on. So have a uh, good start to your week, and we will talk to you again later on. Until then, and as always, my friends, size the 